Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and pit them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello, this is Album Clash. I am a man who will fight for your honour. And I am the god of hellfire. <laughs> now, I've already done that one months ago, mate. Ah, uh, well. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Kev. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, not bad at all. Thank you. An unusual evening for us to record. Indeed. It's Tuesday. I know. So it's all sort of dis- discombobulating. Yeah, well, obviously, I've been away recently, so um, we've gone out of schedule. A school night record. Indeed, but again, those are the lengths we go to to bring our top quality content to you, our loyal listeners. So, you know. Yeah. So be grateful. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Fucking ingrate. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to Album Clash. So, we've finished the Electro season and we're doing a little bit of Album Clash at the movies. And uh, it's my choice to kick us off. It is indeed. Yeah, so this week we are going to be going through the soundtrack to Quentin Tarantino's 1994 smash hit Pulp Fiction. And Kev, what are you going through next week? So next week I will be going through the uh, very influential and bought by everyone our age um, <laughs> yes. soundtrack to Trainspotting. Yeah, indeed. So in terms of connections, well, both incredibly popular movie soundtracks from the 90s, which, as Kev said, everyone bought. Well, I suppose the the concept of the jukebox soundtrack was. Yes. I hear I've, I've heard it referenced that it was brought about by George Lucas in American Graffiti, and that was the first sort of film that really used it. Mm-hmm. But this brought it back, uh, particularly definitely. And, and like you know, in their films slightly previously, and I'm sure we'll get into this. They'd established that that modus operandi, but these are the, the ones that really hit with the public. Absolutely. So I think, well, exactly as you said, both Tarantino and Danny Boyle place a lot of importance on the soundtrack helping to tell the story. To the extent that I would almost, in my usual wanky way, say that the music becomes a character in the film, certainly in some of Tarantino's later stuff, mm-hmm. but even to an extent on both of these films. There are a couple of other connections. So both films are the second feature film of their respective directors. uh, And both feature some fairly graphic depictions of drug taking. Although I would suggest that only one of these films presents the reality of being a heroin addict. The other one somewhat glamorizes it. Yeah, diving into a toilet's well glamorous. Indeed. So yeah, I'm looking forward to getting into these two albums. Yeah, definitely. Not often we do a compilation album, but uh, yeah, all good. Okay, beforehand though, uh, it's can't get you out of my head time. So Kev, have you bought any shite back from your holiday? I have no shite. Okay, so I do have some shite this time. So I, uh, for the first time in a couple of years, last week I was up in Liverpool for a few days with work. So staying in the city centre. <laughs> And so you know town, mm-hmm. right? You know the bit outside St. John's Shopping Centre? Yeah. Like between St. John's and Clayton Square? You know there's always buskers around there? Yeah. Yeah. The quality of buskers in town has not got any better as a result of COVID. <laughs> so there was this lad, I don't know, 18, 20, bless him, 
with a big fuck off speaker as well, so you couldn't ignore him. <laughs> oh, God. And he was getting absolutely stuck into <laughs> the dreadful hero by Enrique Iglesias. Oh. <laughs> Exactly. And so I've genuinely had it stuck in my head for a week now, and it's horrible. Oh, wow. I did not see that coming as a as a busker no. song. From some scal in town. I mean, I might expect it from the beehive. <laughs> uh, yeah, so not good, but that's what's been stuck in my head. What about your good stuff? Okay. We have previously made mention of my... Wirral curiosity, my <laughs> flirtation with the Leisure Peninsula. Yep. And this week I am bringing, um, and Tim, I think Tim knows exactly where I'm going to go. I do like Half Mountain, Half Biscuit. I mean, they have a, a brilliant line in their lyrics, in musically, I think they're great. They also have great album titles. So their latest uh, one, which came out at the end of February, is the Volterol Years. <laughs> nice. And their previous one, which is one of my personal favourite album titles, is No One Cares About Your Creative Hub, So Get Your Fucking Hedges Cut. <laughs> <laughs> it's to the point, I suppose. Yeah. So, like, there's loads of stuff. And I could have picked something off the latest album, but... I'll be honest, I've not listened to it enough to be able to um, to say anything particularly has stood out for me so far. So I'll go with one of my favourite Half Man, Half Biscuit songs, which is Surging Out of Convalescence, uh, which is taken from the Actung Bono album. And it's a <laughs> fucking belter. Great. Okay. Well, it's about time we had some Half Man, Half Biscuit. You you have gone very, very Wirral Curious. I really have. Clashes. Um, it's it's after we, me and Sam went to New Brighton. It's it's clearly it's clearly um, I've been infected with Wirral. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so mine is quite new. It is the song "All That You Want" by a band of whom I'm quite fond, Ibibio Sound Machine. Oh, I do like them. They are good, yeah, and it's from their recently released 17, 18, 19 EP. And as much of their stuff is, it's just a great piece of. 80s influenced electronic Afro-funk music. Which is never a bad thing. No, exactly. And as always, the vocalist Anna Williams, she sounds brilliant. It's got a brilliant funky horn part, so I know you'll enjoy it for that, if nothing else. And we also have a very late edition. I do now have a shite song stuck in my head. Oh, go on then. Literally just from you speaking. Because, like, because the title was close enough to Ace of Bases, all that she wants. <laughs> That's just gone in my head now. You see, I thought you might go because I said Afro funk. You might be thinking of Afro Man's seminal hit because I got high. No, it, I went straight for the bass. <laughs> shall we? Uh, shall we move straight off the bass? Uh, yeah, let's let please. <laughs> All right, so we won't put Ace of Bass on our playlist. We will put the other two songs on our playlist, which you can find on YouTube Music and on the Evil Spotify. And as we've said before, the pinned tweet on our Twitter profile takes you to both of those playlists. Yeah, so check them out and enjoy. Indeed. All right, then it's time for some top trumps, Kev. Indeed, it is. So, you absolutely obliterated me last time. Uh, how confident are you feeling today? 
Um, I'm not. I'm not massively confident. Okay, I'm. Um, I think this might be a close one to be honest with you, but we'll see how we go. Okay. So I'll open with sales. All right. Circa two and a half million. I've twatted you over seven million. Ah, there you go. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go straight from sales to charts. UK number one for Pulp Fiction. Yes, I. Not surprising that Trainspotting got to number one, really. No. In the US, it got to number 21. Now, beat that. Number 45, although surprisingly high. Wow, yeah, absolutely. I did not expect it to be that high, but uh, it ain't 21, so uh, you no. lose. <laughs> all right, 2-0, so maybe it's not going to be close after all. Uh, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to throw one away here. Uh, um, uh, awards? None. <laughs> So, I have pulled one back. Oh, okay, go on. Won uh, the 97 Brit Award for Best Soundtrack. Oh, fair enough. There you go. All right, so it's 2-1. Although, to be fair, I didn't realise that was a category in the Brits. (laughs) Do you know, it was was probably only a category in 1997. (laughs) More likely. Because the BFI wanted to give the train spotting an award. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Go on, then. Okay, uh, I think... Well, I'm going to lose uh, this one, so I'll get it out of the way. Um, certifications. Well, given the sales figures, you, I don't think you're going to do that well. Go on. So UK three times platinum. Ditto. Canada, New Zealand, and Europe, platinum. So I've also got three times platinum in the US, Canada, and Europe. As Yeah, and, and I've got loads of other platinums and golds around the place, but it, it's basically gone three times platinum in all of the big territories around the world, so yeah. Yeah, I'm a bit screwed. Yeah. All right, 3-1. So the best you can do is a draw. All right, let's do the lists. Okay. Right, so uh, in 2007, Vanity Fair, in their list of the top 10 movie soundtracks, they put Pulp Fiction at number four. Number seven. Ooh, okay, so I'm ahead so far. I've got one more list, and that's from 2013 in Entertainment Weekly. In their list of the top 100 movie soundtracks, Pulp Fiction was placed at number 28. Number 17. Ooh, okay. So we call it a draw. draw. Yeah, fine, fair enough. Okay, so I can't win. You can't win. Can you salvage yourself a little bit of pride? Pull one back later. Can I get the 96-minute consolation where I leg it into the net to pick the ball out? But the whistle goes immediately. <laughs> uh, okay, so um, scores is obviously the last the mm. last category. I, I can only get a couple, to be honest with you, for Pulp Fiction. All Music, the ever-reliable All Music, gave Pulp Fiction soundtrack four and a half out of five. Ditto. Okay, and the only other one I've got is Rolling Stone, which was a four out of five. Well, we have a double draw, because the only other one I could get was Q, um, which did four out of five. All right, so that's a draw. So I think that means I've won three one. Yeah, that's right. And it was all on the the sales and the charts and stuff, basically. Yeah. But it doesn't matter because I've won. Uh, that's good news. <laughs> uh, Righty ho. Anything else, or should I start taking us through the background to the pulp? No, I think soundtrack? you should. Um, I think you should start taking us through. Okay. I mean, there's not a great deal to talk about in terms of the background, but as ever, because it's me. 
I've got a load of quotes. <laughs> Strap in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. So Pulp Fiction, as I said earlier, Quentin Tarantino's second film. The film itself was released on the 14th of October, 94. The soundtrack album released on the 27th of September, 94 on MCA Records. The songs on the soundtrack were selected by Tarantino himself and his music supervisor, Karen Rackman. So I just want to talk about the process of selecting music for the film and, and some quotes from Quentin Tantino and from Karen Rackman. So firstly, this interview's on YouTube, but it, it came as a bonus disc on the soundtrack album, an interview with Tarantino talking about the soundtrack, in which he said, one of the things I do when I'm starting a movie, when I'm writing a movie or when I have an idea for a film is I go through my record collection and just start playing songs, trying to find the personality of the movie, to find the spirit of the movie. Then boom, Eventually, I'll hit one, two, or three songs, or one in particular that I'll think, this will make a great opening credits song. That's one of the things about using music in movies that's so cool. It's the fact that if you do it right, if you use the right song in the right scene, really, when you take songs and put them in a sequence in a movie right, it's about as cinematic a thing as you can do. You're really doing what movies do better than any other art form. It works in this really visceral, emotional, cinematic way that's just really special. What I don't want to do, and what I've seen in loads of movies, is they just turn the soundtrack up to create a false energy. Or in particular, to create a sense of the period. Like, okay, it's the 60s. We'll play a load of 60s songs and that'll create the period. To me, that's cheap. It's annoying. And it's like listening to the radio and watching a movie at the same time. They don't really go together, so I try to avoid that. And then I've also got some quotes from Karen Rackman. She had an interview with Point. She actually started working with Quentin Tarantino on Reservoir Dogs. And on that, she says, he had a music supervisor on that film who told him he couldn't have any 70 songs because they couldn't afford them. So they had to get 70 soundalikes to make up 70 songs. So it sounded like 70 songs, but ones you didn't know. And he was devastated and most devastated about Stuck in the Middle with You. He wrote that scene to that song. That's obviously the scene where Michael Madsen cuts off the guy's ear whilst listening to that song. I think they had $10,000 allocated for all the music in the film. And Quentin said, help me get stuck in the middle of you, with you. What can you do? And I was like, I'm going to get it. And it was a hell of a hard job. I'm going to reach out to Joe Egan and Jerry Rafferty, from Steelers Whale, who at the time weren't speaking. Stacey Sher and I put a plan together and explained about how we were paying homage to Singing in the Rain, as used in A Clockwork Orange, and that it's a violent scene. Here we are asking for a song for no money and to a violent film and for a filmmaker you've never heard of. <laughs> so it was a tough job. <laughs> so it was a tough job. But needless to say, I got the song and it took up the entire music budget. Quentin was like, thank you so much. What can I do for you now? And I was like, you can fire your music supervisor and hire me. And he did. And so she went on to work with him again on Pulp Fiction, and she's just the last thing I want to read. She says, especially in Pulp Fiction, Quentin was a horrible speller. He really wrote most of those key songs to that film in the script, but he would make up titles for them that didn't exist and spell things wrong. And I'm like, I can't find this song. Of course, it would be a lot easier today with the internet or that kind of stuff, but it was a tough job. Quentin very much writes to music, and that's the key part of that quote I wanted to, to read, mm -hmm. really. So, yeah, a lot of quotes there, but I thought they were quite important in terms of the way that the music was selected. Yeah, definitely. That being said, I have nothing more on background. No, I've got nothing to add. Okay, so, Kevin, how did you discover the soundtrack to Pulp Fiction? 
I mean, is there anyone of our age <laughs> who didn't own or have a copy of, of this mm-hmm. soundtrack? It was huge. It was massive. It was everywhere. It was. Yeah. So as soon as I'd seen the film, at some point, I got hold of a copy of the soundtrack. So I saw the film for the first time in 95 at my mate's house on a VHS. But by that time, most of the songs on the soundtrack were were really well known because of the success of the soundtrack and the success of the film. You know, the soundtrack, yeah, it was, like you said, we all had it. It was passed around the school for people to tape, to tape, to tape. And I had, you know, so yeah, I did buy it on CD around that same time as well. But yes, like you, who hasn't heard this that was around when the film came out? Well, and, you know, I think it's a really, it's a really good choice of Clash that you've you've made here because Thank you. both of these soundtracks brought some songs that had not, not exactly fallen into disrepute, but, you know, when right up there in the in the zeitgeist brought brought artists back to attention brought songs to new audiences and younger younger people and like as we will talk about this week and next week is that some of these artists this was our, our first sort of experience of them through yeah. these through these films and through through these soundtracks yes absolutely and that is definitely something we'll speak about next week but also today uh, and it's quite interesting that Tarantino is obviously known, and Pulp Fiction in particular, for reviving John Travolta's career until he made Battlefield Earth. <laughs> it, Worst film I've ever seen, genuinely. <laughs> never seen it? Not going to. Uh, but he's, you know, he's done similar things subsequently with the likes of Don Johnson, Kurt Russell, Pam Greer in... Um, Jackie Brown, etc., etc. If we're talking to, I mean, I know we're not going to talk about that sound, but that's a fucking belting soundtrack, Jackie it Brown. It is a belting soundtrack, but we're not talking about that soundtrack. Um, <laughs> but it's the same, as you just said, it's the same with the soundtrack as well, that a lot of the songs and a lot of the artists had, yeah, fallen out of the consciousness of the music listening and record buying public, and this put them right back in there. So, yeah, absolutely right. Should we talk about the artwork? Yeah. Again, we're going to have similar conversations, really. Uh, yes. The image that adorned many a student bedroom wall. Yes. In the late 90s, early 2000s. And yeah, we're going to say the same next week again. Yeah, without question. It's. It, I mean, it's a cracking picture. Um, continues Quentin Tarantino's obsession with Uma Thurman's feet. <laughs> yeah, she's got shoes on at least, though. Well, yeah, but you know. <laughs> yeah. There's a thing there. There is definitely a thing there. So yeah, the artwork is the iconic movie poster with Uma Thurman's character Mia Wallace lying on her front on a bed. She's got a cigarette in one hand, a Pulp Fiction novel in the other. There's a gun on the pillow and she's looking at the camera with all the attitude of a 50s film noir femme fatale. Mm -hmm. And it is a classic image like you said yeah it's it's a brilliant visualization of your classic pulp fiction novel like yeah. he, it's it's even got like sort of the 10 cent thing great. in the top right hand corner yeah. and like it's a little dog-eared like it's yeah. it, it's 
beautifully designed. It is beautifully designed. The photograph itself was taken by the photographer Farouz Zahidi. Uh, And an interesting story there, in November of 2021, Zahidi unsuccessfully tried to sue Miramax over the studio's continued use of the image to, well, merchandise, basically. But basically, a judge ruled that he'd waited too long and said the statute of limitations had expired. And that if he'd really had a grievance about it, he would have said so sooner. So he lost. I mean, I'm not going to accuse it, but he had he had waited a fair old while to to yeah. make his point. He had indeed. But that's the artwork. Okay. All right then. Should we start going through the tracks? Yeah, let's do it. And we start with well, something of a statement, I would say. It's <laughs> uh, we start with Misalu by Dick Dale and his Deltones. It's uh, actually originally a Middle Eastern folk song, which originates in the early 20th century from the Ottoman Empire. The earliest known recording of it was in 1927, and roughly translated, the song title means Egyptian woman. This version by Dick Dale and the Deltones was recorded as a single in April 1962. And here's something I found out when researching this class. In 1963, it was covered by the Beach Boys for their second album, Surfing Safari. Well, there you go. Uh, Later on, it was sampled, much later on, it was sampled by the Black Eyed Peas on their dreadful 2006 hit, Pump It. Um, (laughs) I missed that. So what what we also need to say is that this uh, soundtrack album also has excerpts of the film. So yes. just before uh, Mizzaloo kicks in, you get the classic pumpkin and honey bunny dialogue between Tim Tim Roth and Amanda Plummer. Yeah, and as you said, it, 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 just before the song kicks in, you've got the immortal line from Amanda Plummer, any of you fucking pricks move and I'll execute every motherfucking last one of you. And then boom, you're right there. Yeah, it's hairs on the back of your neck for me every time I watch the film. Every time I listen to the soundtrack, and it's a perfect choice for a film soundtrack because mm-hmm. I cannot hear this piece of music without thinking of Pulp Fiction. Uh-huh. Like it, it is synonymous with it now. Yep, it absolutely is. Hundred percent agree with you there. So here's what Quentin said about using Mizzou for the opening credits. To me, the opening credits are very important because that's the only mood time that most movies give themselves. A cool credit sequence and the music that plays in front of it, or note played, or any music, whatever you decide to do that sets the tone for that movie, that's important for you. So I'm always trying to find what's the right opening or closing credit should be early on when I'm just even thinking about the story. Once I find it, that really kind of triggers me into what the personality of the piece should be, what the rhythm of the piece should be. Having Mizzou as your opening credits is just so intense. It just says, you're watching an epic. You're watching this big old movie, so just sit back. It's so loud and blaring at you, a gauntlet is thrown down that the movie just has to live up to. It's like saying, we're big. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a big, bold opening sound. Yeah, it's, it's a fucking banger as well, isn't it? Yeah. Like, it is intense. It is big. The guitar part is massive, as is that trumpet solo. And you've just got a huge, booming, simple rhythm, but it's just turned up to, not, not 11, it's turned up to 12. It just propels the whole thing along like a fucking rocket chip. Well, and I know, that, like, obviously there's a there's a quote on the Wikipedia page related to it saying that, like, he chose surf music as the basis of the film score because it's it was like rock and roll and Ennio Morricone. And, like, with that kind of brass 
section, it does it does bring to mind like Good, the Bad and the Ugly and the, yep. the Spaghetti trilogy, really. Yeah, and we know from his later films at Tarantino, he is a big fan of Morricone, and why not? Because and who isn't, be. really? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's a great start. And um, like you said, you cannot hear this piece of music without thinking of Pulp Fiction, which I would also say about the next track as well. Indeed. So we have another sound excerpt from the film. It's the classic Royale with Cheese. Yes. Conversation. And it's it's classic Quentin Tarantino dialogue. It It is classic Quentin Tarantino dialogue. I, so full disclosure, I haven't noted down and talked about all the excerpts from all of, all, you know, that, that are in the soundtrack. Cause Don't worry, I have. <laughs> sound, okay. But yeah, so the Royale with Cheese stuff, it's, it, it, it's great. So... That then takes us into Jungle Boogie, which in the film itself comes in after the radio in the car is retuned right at the end of the opening credits. Mm-hmm. So Jungle Boogie, written and recorded by Cool and the Gang from their 1973 album Wild and Peaceful. It was released as a single in November of 73 and it reached number four in the US and it sold over a million copies. So even uh, first time around, it was a big hit. And I'm not surprised because it's a fucking banger. It is a rammer. Just very quickly, the uh, the sort of the deep growling scat part, you know, the get up with the get down. That's performed yeah. by Cool and the Gang's roadie, Don Boyce. Wow. Yeah. What a voice. <laughs> it's great, isn't it? <laughs> So Quentin said he picked this song because it was intense. It's a cool, cool song. Cool is fucking right. It it is funky with a capital funk. Well, it's it's filthy funk, is what it is. Yes, it filthy funk is absolutely right. Okay, right. Let's talk about the music because that's generally what we try and do on Album Clash. <laughs> the bass line's fantastic, as are the keys. But this is all about the horns, yeah. Oh yeah. It's massive. It's it's a it's a great driving song, actually. You cannot resist bobbing your head along with the rhythm if you're listening to this in the car. Well, as soon as soon as it kicks in and you get the the horns come in, you've you've got me. Just take me where you're going because this is fucking great. Mm-hmm. So speaking of those horns, they have been sampled 162 times, uh, including most famously by the Beastie Boys on Hey Ladies and by the Loonies on their classic 1996 hit, I Got Five on it. Wow. Yeah. Uh, The song itself has been covered six times. (laughs) The only one I... Kev, we're going into lots of covers on today's show. So yeah, just just for the listeners, I've got my head in my hands in preparation. <laughs> the only one I want to call <clears throat> Jungle Boogie was covered by Alvin and the Chipmunks featuring the Chipettes. I did not need that in my life. Your life has not been enriched with that no. knowledge. <laughs> I feel I feel like we should be one step closer to um self destruction. <laughs> well the fact we, that that exists. Well we might be actually. <laughs> I'll I'll put a phone call into Moscow. <laughs> uh yeah, Jungle Boogie's really, really good. Yeah, it really is. As is the third track. Not bad. It's Let's Stay Together by Al Green. Kev, what do you think? I mean, it's one of my favourite songs ever. Mm. It's like, oh, Al Green's vocals are just sumptuous, silky. It's beautifully put together. It's pure soul. Like, mm. just the balance of 
again, like the different musical elements in there, it's it's a fucking belting song. I love this song. Yes, so do I. So in the film, as you will know, it's plays underneath the, the film in the bar where Marcellus Wallace, played by Ving Rhames, is bribing Bruce Willis's Butch Coolidge to lose his upcoming fight. You know, in the fifth, your ass goes down. So, uh, Quentin of this song said, the Al Green song playing in the scene with Bruce Willis, the way it does, that's almost like a hypnotic score, the way that plays. Because the majority of the song plays as you're just staring at this long take of Bruce Willis listening to someone talking off screen. And I know what he means when he says hypnotic. Mm -hmm. It's got a constant beat, especially the sort of rolling congas, which are just gently underneath there, but they're there all the way through. And Al Green's voice is just so delicate and so soothing. Guiling. Yeah. And you've got the gentle strings that offset it all. It's a beautiful, beautiful piece of music, this. Yeah, it absolutely is. Although uh, Ving Rhames' character uh, mentioning about someone's ass going down, well, (laughs) we'll get to that. Indeed. So, the song uh, was released on Al Green's fourth album of the same name in 1972. It was released as a single in November of 71. It got to number one in the US, but only number seven in the UK. Again, British record buying public. (laughs) Uh, Okay, covers. I mean, pretty much everyone has covered this, Kev. And I'm going to start off with some good ones before I move on to some others. Isaac Hayes. Okay. Al Jiro. Okay. Roberta Flack. Okay. Craig David. Oh, God. (laughs) Robin Thicke. Okay, just stop there. (laughs) No, because I've got to read the last one. Michael... Bolton. I'm not surprised that Michael Bolton's <laughs> had to go with it. I actually think that Thick is worse than Bolton. Kev looks absolutely crestfallen. Not even crestfallen, disgusted. You look ill. You have taken the jam from me, Donuts. <laughs> I've ruined your day. You really have. Like the fact that I know that a Robin Thick version of one of the greatest songs exists has just made my day much worse. You're not tempted to have a, li- have a little listen? No. <laughs> I'd rather nail my own balls. <laughs> so would Robin Thicke, in all probability. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, as I said, it's a beautiful, beautiful piece of music, and I think its use is really subtle, but really effective. In, yeah, in the absolutely. Film. That's all I have to say about it, though. Yeah. Okay, we move on to Bustin' Surfboards, which is a 1962 surf rock instrumental recorded by the Tornadoes. Yeah, as you said, Tarantino explained the use of, of, of surf music throughout the film, saying, I always really dug surf music a lot, but the thing was I never understood what the hell it had to do with surfing. I kind of agree with him there. I don't see the connection between this music and surfing. To me, as you said, it sounded like rock and roll spaghetti western music. Although, at least on this one, there is the sound of rolling waves. So, you know, there's a kind of connection there, I guess. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's something there. <laughs> what do you think? So, I think it's perfectly fine. Um, and it works It works well in the scene that it's utilised in. Yeah. It's not the most memorable piece of music on the on the soundtrack, but it's perfect. It's perfectly good. 
yeah, I think given some of the other things that are on this album, that it kind of fades into the background a little bit. But it works like it it does its job for the for the scene. Yeah, absolutely. I, I guess what I would say is not every piece of music needs to stand out. Yeah, because then I think the soundtrack's doing too much work. And so I think, yeah, like you said, it does its job in the scene. So the scene it's used in is uh, John Travolta's in Eric Stoltz's house. He's about to buy some smack off him, but he's talking to Eric Stoltz's wife, Rosanna Arquette, who's talking about all of her piercings. And John Travolta asks her why she would have a stud in her tongue. And she explains it's for fellatio. So I think, yes, it's perfectly fine. It's a perfectly good example of, of early 60s surf rock. The one thing I have said is the whammy bar guitar part. It does kind of put me in mind of the theme to Third Rock from the Sun. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. I like Third Rock from the Sun, but no. you know what I mean. And who'd have thought that um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt would go on to be like a really respected <laughs> yeah. actor and the dad from it, John Lithgow, ends up playing Churchill. What? When did John Lithgow play Churchill? In uh, The Crown. Oh, I don't watch The Crown, so I didn't know that. Well, there you go. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 it's fine. Busting surfboards. Yeah. Okay, uh, on to Lonesome Town. So, uh, originally recorded by teenage heartthrob Ricky Nelson. His version reached number seven on the Billboard chart in August 1958. The track was written by Baker Knight, who apparently, according to Rolling Stone, had originally intended for this to be a calypso number with pianos and a conga-driven rhythm. Hmm. Until someone suggested... Exactly. Don't really get that. Until someone suggested it would work best as a guitar tune. Uh, and the same Rolling Stone article it quotes Baker Knight talking about the inspiration for the song. He said, It was Hollywood. I was sitting in the middle of this whole thing. I was broke. I didn't know what I was going to do. My manager was giving me a few bucks, keeping me going just to pay my rent. So I ne- before I heard the official soundtrack, I'd never come across this before. So my my mum is a big fan of 50s rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Eddie Cochran, Ricky Nelson, etc., etc. The, the You know, the teen heartthrobs. So I mm-hmm. I was familiar with this before I'd heard the soundtrack. And I think it's, it's a lovely country-tinged ballad. Yep. And it's beautifully performed. It's got a lovely simplicity to it that works really well and again it works it works really well in the scene as well it's it's perfectly um utilized yeah so it's it's um plays underneath the scene in jack rabbit slims where mia wallace all has a five dollar shake mm-hmm. so i agree with you it's a really nice ballad uh, I, what i've said is i would i would describe it almost as a counterpoint to something like the everly brothers dream which is a similarly stripped back slow ballad but whereas that is speaking mm-hmm. about you know dreaming of being with one's lover this one's all about loneliness and about heartbreak and i think given that what how old was ricky nelson 19 18 when he sung this there's a real poignance to his vocal performance on this i think it's nothing over the top but it's really effective mm-hmm. I d- yeah i perfectly agree with that i can't say that i'm the biggest fan of 50s rock and roll but when done well, it's really good. And I think this is done well. It is. It's it's lovely. Yeah. Uh, okay, covers of this. A few strange ones. Paul McCartney. Hmm. A, a version by Bob Dylan and Tom Petty. Uh, I, I get that. 
And, uh, well, it's been covered by Jason Donovan. The surprising thing is not that he covered it, because he very much was in the teen heartthrob mould. The surprising thing is when he covered it. Apparently, Jason Donovan released an album as recently as 2008. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and And this was covered on that album. Well, there you go. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Shall we move on? Yeah, um, I might have a few things to say about this next song. <laughs> yeah, so the next song is Son of a Preacher Man by Dusty Springfield. Written by John Hurley and Ronnie Wilkins. Dusty recorded it for the 1968 album Dusty in Memphis. Apparently, the producer of the song, Jerry Wexler, had originally offered it to Aretha Franklin. And Aretha turned it down. Then she heard Dusty's version and thought, ah, shit. (laughs) Yeah. But she then recorded her own version anyway, which... Which is a great version. It is a great version, but it ain't this. No, this is... I mean, Dusty in Memphis is a brilliant album. Mm Mm-hmm. And certainly one that we may well do in the future. Yeah. Uh, the vocal vocal performance is stunning. Absolutely stunning. It is. Sultry is how I would describe the vocal performance. And everything in the musical, musical composition is designed to accentuate that sultriness of the vocal performance. The, you know, it starts off so gently with just a little guitar lick. And that bass line that's wandering all over the place. And then it builds and builds through the verse into the chorus, which becomes epic with the horns. Then you get to the bridge, which has got that big bombast to it. And then you come back for the final chorus and it's fucking huge. It are funky yet soulful, epic yet sensual. It just, it's wow. It grows from, as you say, such simplicity and such a, lo-fi opening to that ending it's it's a brilliant piece of work and the musicianship throughout is utterly beguiling yeah no beguiling is absolutely right so obviously you know the scene that this features in it's when vincent vega played by john travolta turns up at mia wallace played by uma thurman's house whilst he's taking her out on a not a date whilst marcellus is out of town He waits while she gets ready. Tarantino said, again in that 1994 interview, I've had that scene in my head for six or seven years and it was always scored to Son of a Preacher Man. And what I would say is, it is the perfect introduction to Uma Thurman's character. Again, I cannot hear this song without thinking of Pulp Fiction, without thinking of that scene. Yeah, her character is such a mysterious, Mm -hmm. beguiling character. So... For her theme yeah. music, if you like, to, to be this, it's perfect. It just works so well. It does. And it also highlights that sexual tension between them, which is there right from the off, even before they've met, because at this time she's just speaking to him over a, an intercom. Yeah. But obviously is there throughout the rest of their scenes together. It's great. It's, yeah, it's great. It, it's one of my, again... And you can see how this soundtrack certainly has ha- had an influence on my personal music taste because mm-hmm. 
Son of a Preacher Man is one is another personal favourite off an album yeah. that I really love. Absolutely. So, just quickly before we move on, other notable cover versions of Son of a Preacher Man. Obviously, I mentioned the Aretha one. It's also been covered by Nancy Sinatra, of course. Tina Turner. Yeah. Mavis Staples. Lovely stuff. And Hank Marvin. <laughs> Couldn't help yourself, could you? Hank Marvin! <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Uh, and obviously, it was sampled quite famously by Cypress Hill on the track Hit from the Ball, which is a belter. Indeed. Hank Marvin just has such a weird, a weird place <laughs> yeah. in sort of British music in that he. He really should be sort of lauded as a kind of innovator to some extent, but because he's so synonymous with the shadows doing that shit walk thing, and yeah. with Cliff Richards, who, with all his associated naffness, Cliff Richardness, he's yes. he's somewhat of a of a joke, really. Certainly to me and and people of our age, like to me, Hank, and he looks like Simon Bates. Well, Hank Marvin in my head is irretrievably linked with. Una Stubbs and that kind of era. <laughs> Anna Nick and yeah. Pebble Mill and all that kind of thing. Yeah, Nafness is absolutely right. And it, as I said, he looks like Simon Bates. I might actually introduce a new feature to Album Clash. What do you think? Hank Marvin cover versions. To each show, I bring out a new Hank Marvin cover version. That's bizarre. A surprising Hank Marvin cover. <laughs> Should we move on? Yeah, let's do it. All right, we go back to some surf rock here with Bullwinkle Part 2 by the Centurions, spelt incorrectly. Well, and slightly just before that, we have Zed's Dead. Oh, yes, of course. Whose motorcycle is this? <laughs> Whose japper is this? <laughs> Which uh, has always annoyed me on the soundtrack album because Bullwinkle Part 2 does not feature in Act 2 in the Bruce Willis story. It features quite prominently in the scene where you see Vincent Vega shooting up mm-hmm. quite graphically, as I mentioned earlier, and then driving, looking extremely relaxed, to meet Mia. So, yeah, the Zed's Dead bit, it's always irritated me there. Stop getting your own film wrong! <laughs> we know that you, you mess around with the time frames, but, like, not on your soundtrack. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, so Quentin explained the song use thus. In Reservoir Dogs, every piece of music in the movie was source music, so someone would turn on the radio and hear something. It was always set up in the scene. In the case of Pulp Fiction, I actually used score. All the surf music in the movie, a lot of it is used as score. When John Travolta is driving and there's that little heroin montage, that's score music. He's not listening to the radio. Quite literally score music. (laughs) Yeah. I, I like this. I think this is a really good piece of surf rock. Yeah, it's it's got really filthy sax and guitars. And again, it oh yeah, it sort of speaks to the grubbiness of what he's up to. Definitely, it starts off with that bass line. That, that bass line is everything. Yeah. to this track, it's dirty. It's dum, deep. Dum, dum, dum. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, like you said, the guitars coming in, uh, and yeah, that the sax part, which is unexpected but very very welcome indeed. Yeah, I would say this is probably one of the most well-known scenes in the film. It was one of the most controversial scenes, certainly, mm-hmm. when the film came out. 
and this track is right at the center of that not the controversy but you know the scene and and so again I- well it i think you're right in terms that it's the center of the the scene because one of the main sort of controversies of the film is is how it glamorized drug use and having that kind of such a brilliant piece of music mm-hmm. whilst he's shooting up it does make it look glamorous and yeah we we have the the flip side when we talk about it next week. Yeah, indeed we do. But for what this film is trying to portray in that moment, whether you like it or not, it's a perfectly pitched piece of music. Oh, God, yeah. It works brilliantly. Because I I don't actually agree that it glamorises it. Uh, It certainly doesn't depict the negative side of drug addiction. No, it doesn't. There's a scene later on which arguably goes some way to doing that. Okay, we'll get there shortly. But at this point, you are meant to think that Vincent Vega is cool, Daddy-O, that Vincent Vega has got himself to the point, yeah, now he's going to go out, now he's chill, now he's centred. The way he shot in that scene, driving, it's not doing anything to disabuse people of that notion that it's glamorising it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it... uh... I suppose the people who are going to accuse it of glamorising it are the kinds of people... Your Mary who, Whitehouses. Well, I was going to say, like, the people who just want the just-say-no kind of approach to it. And What's Zamo got to do with it? <laughs> <laughs> a, a man who uh, who smokes a joint in the White House. Indeed. But, yeah, like, the people who are going to get annoyed were going to get annoyed anyway by it. It doesn't depict the dark side of drug addiction, but yeah. that's not what this scene was about. No, that's fair. But anyway, speaking of controversy, shall we move on to our next track? I think we should. Okay, so the next track is You Never Can Tell. And it's not controversial because of its use in the film, but more controversy uh, surrounding its writer and performer. So, You Never Can Tell, written and recorded by Chuck Berry, Released in August 1964, it reached number 14 in the US. Okay, I am going to read a quote from the Rolling Stone. Not a, not, a, not quoting someone, but just literally, this is what was written in the Rolling Stone article around the Pulp Fiction soundtrack and about this song in particular. In that article, it said that Chuck Berry wrote this song, and I quote, While doing time in Springfield, Missouri's Federal Medical Center prison for allegedly bringing a 14-year-old across state lines to have sex with her. So, that therefore makes it all the more unfortunate that this song is about a teenage wedding. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to go into Chuck Berry's misdemeanors and or alleged misdemeanors any further. We have mentioned him in Dispatches previously. We have. So, yeah. What do you think of the song? So, if you ignore that, because actually I wasn't aware of when he wrote it. I was aware of lots of other stuff related to Chuck Berry, but I wasn't aware of that. So that kind of sideswiped me a little. But I will... So I think it's a br- it's a brilliant song, and the, like one of my notes here is this song has led to many fellas of our age and and above doing their best Vincent Vega impression to this to this song. Well, yes, but Vincent Vega himself, when dancing to this song, is doing his best Adam West Batman impression because he's literally <laughs> doing Adam West Batman dance. It doesn't Batman dance anymore? <laughs> Remember the Batu C? But it is, though, isn't it? We've all seen that gif 
of Adam West dancing, and it's the fucking same as Travolta's doing here. But Travolta does it with so much style, though. He does indeed. He does indeed. The most famous scene from the film? It's it's get, it's getting up there. And again, the power of the use of this song with the iconography of the film. Like, yes. this song will forever be linked with that film now and that dance scene. Absolutely. It's it's a very, very un-Chuck Berry-sounding song, though. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, in that it's not a guitar-heavy blues rock standard. You can barely hear the guitar on it after the opening two bars. Mm-hmm. It's a lot more swing, boogie-woogie sounding. You've got heavy use of sax parts in there. And you've got that sort of slightly detuned, well, to me it sounds detuned, piano riff. It actually puts me in mind of saloon bars in mm-hmm. Western films, you know. Do, 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 anyway. But yes, it's a great song, despite my misgivings about its artist and its writer. And its provenance, I suppose. Uh, yeah, indeed, and its provenance. But again, it fits the scene perfectly. Um, so apparently... One of the reasons Tarantino chose it is because he wanted to give the scene a sort of 50s French New Wave dance sequence feel, and he felt that the lyrics and the sound of the song um, helped provide that, which I can see where he's coming from. He wanted an opportunity to have Travolta dance. Let's be honest about it. Like He's got, Tra- he's got Travolta. His career's on the skids after um, yes. the last Look Who's Talking film. And yeah, he gets Travolta back and gets him dancing. And that's... So, that's... Yes. But also at the same time, uh, manages to uh, have an excuse to shoot several shots, as you said before, of Uma Thurman's feet. Yeah. Very much a lingering shot of her taking her shoes off. Yeah. So have you ever come across the Honest Trailers on YouTube, the Honest Trailers series on YouTube? So yes, I have I have come across them before. So they've done one a couple of years ago called Every Tarantino Movie. And there's a whole thing about feet in there. Like, and man likes feet. <laughs> He's a big fan. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> yeah, um, I do like, you never can tell. Yeah. All right, on we go then, yeah? Yeah, let's go to the next one. So we move on to Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon. This is a cover of a Neil Diamond song recorded by Urge Overkill. Originally recorded for their EP Stull, uh, released in 1991. After the film's release, they released it as a single. It got to number 37 in the UK and number 59 on the Hot 100 in the States. In the film, it's the song that Mia Wallace puts on the 8-track when she gets back from dinner with Vincent. He goes off to the bathroom. She's dancing around the living room to it in his coat. She finds his heroin and she overdoses on it because she snorts it like it's fucking cocaine. Mm-hmm. That's, that's going to cause a, a bit of a bit of an issue. <laughs> okay, so apparently Quentin was considering a, a number of songs to use for this scene, but he bought a second-hand copy of Stull in a, in a record shop in this country. And then when he heard this track, he said, all of a sudden, this is it. Beyond the shadow of a doubt, this is the song Mia has to dance to by herself. I played it to Uma, and Uma flipped. I never realised it was a cover until actually researching this clash. Yeah, I did, again. So, as well as liking 50s rock and roll, my mum likes Neil Diamond, so... I See, I've, I don't have a huge amount of knowledge or experience of Neil Diamond. 
So what do you think of the song? I think it's great. I think it's a belting cover. It's It's got loads of pathos to it. I think it's really... I mean, we've we've mentioned him relatively recently. It's it's very Angelo Badalamente sounding. Yep. Yeah, it's great. And it, again, he's picked the perfect song. I can't think of another song that would work as well for that scene. Okay. So I'm going to talk about the scene and then I'll talk about my thoughts of the song. I agree with you. It is a perfectly pitched song yet again for this scene. It's seductive. It's got a great hook to it, but the way it's played, it's also got a real sense of foreboding. Mm-hmm. You know something's going to happen. Exactly. It doesn't feel right. So does that. Great choice. But on the other hand, and this probably comes from the fact that I was familiar with it before I heard the soundtrack album, I've never liked Neil Diamond. This is, granted, a significant improvement on his version and I think the vocal part kind of puts me in mind of Nick Cave, actually. Yeah, it's got a bit of Nick Cave going on. But I just don't know what I think about this track. I, I've never be. I, I'll listen to it once and I'll think, no, I get into this, I like it. And then I'll listen to it again and it's like, mm, nah. And I, that was happening to me whilst I was researching this class as well. I, I do go back and forth on it a lot. So I think the, the bit that gets, the really gets, it's the ramp the ramp up to the, to the song similar to what we were talking about with sort of a preacher man is that it starts so slow and simple and um stripped back and then you add the the various elements to it and then obviously you got the bridge where it really kicks off and that like i think yeah. i think it's a great piece of music okay fair enough uh, i i respect your opinion and don't disagree but but i also don't entirely agree so there you go mm-hmm. yeah fair enough All right, then. Next track is If Love is a Red Dress, uh, written and recorded by Maria McKee, who you may recall six years prior to this had recorded the track Show Me Heaven for the Tom Cruise vehicle Days of Thunder, or Top Gun with Cars, as it's more commonly known. Top Car. (laughs) I think it was called The Bus That Couldn't Slow Down. So it's the only original song in the film soundtrack. And I think its use is much more subtle in the film than any of the other tracks on the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's it's just playing quietly on the radio when Bruce Willis and Ving Rhames bust into the pawn shop and start scrapping on the floor. You know, the looks like a spider caught himself a couple of flies. And for me, when I first heard this, I was completely caught off guard I think it's stunning this I, I love it it's really really simple but it just stops me dead in my tracks every time I hear it so I think I think we I think you know from the way I I, I opened my sentence well <laughs> what I'll say is that I think that her vo- her vocal performance is amazing I can't you know, it would be churlish to say otherwise that, you know, she she sings it really well. I don't like the song, though. It does nothing for me. I think she performs it excellently, and she's got a cracking voice, but nah, doesn't work for me. Oh, okay. I like the simplicity of it. It's completely stripped back. It's, it's a quiet guitar and her vocal. It's got a really dirty country vibe to it, this. I can picture this being sung in a dive bar. 
you know, there's a real world weariness to Maria mm-hmm. McKee's vocal on it. It's like she's wearing the scars of all her broken relationships so the whole world can see. I have to say, I'm glad he chose to use this, otherwise I'd never have heard this song. I really like it, and I, I always have. Fair enough. I don't agree with you. It doesn't float my boat, but, you know, other opinions are available. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> You don't feel as strongly about it as you do a huge, ever-growing, pulsating brain ruling from the centre of the oh, ultra. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, so just quickly on this, what did Quentin Tarantino say uh, when he described his choice of the song? When you hit it right, the effect is you can never really hear a song again without thinking about that image from the movie. Now, whilst I agree with him in general on that point, and we've talked about that already on a few songs, don't actually think that's necessarily the case here because it's almost like a blink and you'll miss it inclusion of this song on the soundtrack whilst i really like it and i'm glad it's on here to me this one is not synonymous with the film in the way that earlier tracks are well it's it's use in the film is as as you said it's it's background music it's it's not front and center Mm -hmm. no exactly uh, unlike the next track, which very much is front and centre. Bring out the gimp. <laughs> yeah, so more surf rock. Comanche. It, well, this is the song playing when Marcellus Wallace is being raped by Zed uh, until Bruce Willis comes to his rescue with a samurai sword. Yeah. So, do you know what Quentin Tarantino originally considered using in this scene? <laughs> I don't, but I think I'm going to be amused. Not so much with the choice of song, but what he says about it. So, he was originally looking to use My Sharona by the Knack, banger. And he explained this. My Sharona has a really good sodomy beat to it, if you think about it. What? (laughs) I mean, at no point have I heard songs and gone, yeah, well, that's very much like sodomizing. (laughs) And it just seems so funny to me. And so we tried to get it. Apparently part of the band was for it, but one of the band members had become a born-again Christian, and he just wasn't for it, not interested. Ultimately, I'm glad, because it would have been too cutely comic. Comanche still works the same. It's still kind of funny, but it doesn't break the scene. Well, I don't think my Sharona would have worked at all. Not not because it would have been too cutely comic, but it's not a scene to me that lends itself to a pounding rock song no i think the choice is perfect because that absolutely filthy sax (laughs) it is filthy isn't it absolutely engenders the discomfort that you should be feeling at that time absolutely it's another one that built in a different way but it builds from the start yeah and the way that in the scene, you've got Bruce Willis. First of all, he's seeing the different weapons that he can use. You know, he's got like, what does he, he's got a hammer, then a baseball bat, then a chainsaw, then the fucking samurai sword. And then again, when he's creeping in to, you know, use the samurai sword, it builds suspense. Yeah. Which is exactly what the scene needs. And like you said, the sax part is filthy. It's frenzied. The whole thing to me has got a sense of what goes on in the shadows mm-hmm. to it. It's really, really effective, this. Yeah, and 
again, it's a piece of music that, unfortunately, as soon as you hear hear that opening... You're thinking about Ving Rhames getting bummed. <laughs> yeah, it takes you down to uh, Zed Seller. Um, it... Yeah, you, you, you're not having a good time. Indeed, you're not having a good time. But anyway, there you go. Yeah, I, I don't think my show would have worked at all there. No, I, th- I think we are fortunate that one of the knack, um, knackered the opportunity. Do you know what film came to use my Sharona? I have, I have heard my Sharona in a film, and I can't think. It's of... the John Favreau directed Winona Ryder vehicle, Reality Bites. Well, there you go. Um, <laughs> that wasn't what I was thinking of. Okay, Flowers on the Wall is the next one, written and performed by the Statler Brothers. Released in January 1966, got to number four on the Billboard Hot 100, and it got to number one in Canada, winning two Grammy Awards as well. Wow. Yeah, indeed. So, this is the song Bruce Willis is listening to and singing along. Well, they're always underestimating him. (laughs) When he sees Marcellus crossing the road and he runs him over, you know. So, Quentin, again. The Statler Brothers is one of the major uses of a song that wasn't my idea. That was music supervisor Karen Rackman's idea. Karen just kept giving me different tapes, and for every five new songs, she'd put an old song on there. And there was once I was like, yeah, the Statler Brothers, I can see that. I can really see Bruce singing that song. And I told it to Bruce, and he said, oh my god, I love it. So, there you go. Right, I understand it's supposed to be whimsical. It's supposed to be light-hearted. It's supposed to make you think that Butch is in the clear. So you get the juxtaposition and the shock when you see Ving Rhames' character, when you see Marcellus Wallace crossing the road. And it does all that, and it does it really, really well. But that doesn't mean I have to like the song. It's a novelty country and western song. Fine. I'm not a huge fan, I have to say. I don't dislike it. Okay. It's got a lovely bit of banjo. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Not as good as The Grid. (laughs) What we'll say is that, obviously, as as we always say, we listen to these albums a few times. This is one of the songs that's been stuck in my head. Oh, definitely. It gets stuck in your head. It's it's properly but catchy. Fucking Enrique Iglesias gets stuck in your head, mate. Don't mean it's any good. <laughs> now, this is better than that, in yeah. fairness. <laughs> yeah, it's catchy. So is COVID. Didn't mean I want it in my life. <laughs> it's fine. I, 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 I'm, I'm not going to say I hate it. But, you know, if I was into skipping, which I'm not, this would be a skipper. I can't say it's a it's a thing that I'd have on heavy rotation, but I don't dislike it. Okay, fine. So, shall we go on to, well, the final track on the... The final musical track on the soundtrack album. Well, we have, we have a lovely chat, uh, which is personality goes a long way, which is talking about um, eating oh, pork. Pigs. Yeah. yeah, of, yeah which, okay. which is brilliant. It is brilliant. Yeah, it, it, it is. Again, it's Tarantino dialogue. He does dialogue very, very well. Yeah, and then we we finish with, well... The end credits tune. Yeah, the end credits tune. And it's a, it's a belter. Yeah, Surf Rider. So it's another surf rock instrumental. This one's performed by the lively ones. I think it's a really nice counterpoint to Miserloo. Yeah. You hear John Travolta say... I think we should be leaving now, sort of quite sheepishly. Then you see them, Vincent Vega and Jules, sticking their guns into their shorts, walking out the diner, and the song fades in. It's a real, as I say, it's a nice counterpoint to Miserly. I think it's a really good way to end the film because, bear with me with this, it's got a sense of finality to it, 
but also of to be continued or the story doesn't end there, which we know it doesn't because Act 3 takes place before Acts 1 and 2 both take place. So, you know, there's that sort of ambiguity to it, if you know what I mean. Well, the the sound of it, that kind of guitar, like, it's just full of intrigue. It's That's, yes, there you go. So I, when I was listening to it, it brought to mind for me, like, it could easily be used in a 60s spy thriller. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Hive mind. Yes. <laughs> because it does have that kind of what's going to happen next. Could be in The Man From U.N.C.L.E. Yeah, dead easily. De- yeah, definitely. So what's really interesting to me about the film is that this is the first track you hear in the whole of Act 3. Until that point, from the moment that Butch and Fabian ride off on the chopper at the end of Act 2, you do not hear another piece of music until this kicks in at the end. And when you normally think of Act 3 in a film, that's where you get all the tension in. You think about Kill Bill, both mm-hmm. Part 1 and Part 2. The number of big tunes that are in the Act 3 of those films, just aim Tarantino. And this, it's the complete opposite. You've had all the iconic moments with the iconic tunes in Acts 1 and 2. And Act 3 is all about Quentin Tarantino dialogue and the performances, certainly in that diner scene, of Tim Roth and Samuel L. Jackson. I, I just find it interesting. Yeah, it is. Like, it's... It doesn't fit with normal convention, but I think that's why the film is so memorable because it messes around with what you expect. Very much so, um, which is why you see arguably the male lead um, die uh, in the middle of Act 2, but then they're in the final scene of the film. So yeah, there you go. That brings us to the end. Well, we do finish with the Samuel L. Jackson Ezekiel 2517 speech, don't we? Yeah. But, uh, yeah, musically, Surf Rider is the final track. There was a uh, deluxe edition released a few years later with a few other tracks on there which are used in the film, but we don't go through those sorts of things on Album Clash, so I will end things there. Quite rightly. (laughs) Okay, uh, I do have a couple of reviews, if I may. Okay. All right, just briefly. So, Paul Corio in The Rolling Stone... At the time, wrote with pop culture itself one of Tarantino's obsessions. It's fitting that his films deploy pop music expertly. His soundtracks could fill the playlist of some eerie radio station dreamed up by a programme director with a yen for shock. Pulp Fiction's terrific twang bar rockers, the Tornadoes, the Revels, and 70s R&B, Al Green, Cool and the Gang, form the funky sun around which such campy planets as the Statler Brothers and Urge Overkill singing Neil Diamond revolve. I think he's saying he quite likes it. <laughs> and finally, our old friend Stephen Thomas Erlewine wrote in All Music The soundtrack to Quentin Tarantino's darkly funny crime classic Pulp Fiction manages to recreate the film's wildly careening sense of style, violence, and humour by concentrating on the serve music that comprises the bulk of the movie's incidental music and adding a few sexy oldies integral to the film's story. Yup. As always, he's nailed what we've said in about an hour and a half in one short paragraph. No, it's really annoying that like he, <laughs> he's really good at his job. Yeah, that's good. It's a good job we don't get paid for this, mate. Yeah. Uh, okay, Nobby time. 
Okay. So, uh, Nobby hasn't reviewed this album, uh, but we've had a few too many Nobby free weeks of late, and I don't want to be that kind to you. So, here's what Robert Criscale said about Al Green's Let's Stay Together. Maybe it's just that I'm so tired of the title single, but this is disappointing. Al Green Gets Next to You shows some real emotional range. Like Marvin Gaye, Green comes on both passive and active. The popularity of his romantic disappointment, however, has has induced him to narrow his persona. The most impressive cut on this LP is How Can You Mend a Broken Heart? Green's version is far superior to the Bee Gees original, but the original is pure glop. The album doesn't include one piece of real funk. Green is still the most intelligent male soul singer to emerge in years. And in the context of three or four more albums, this one may sound fine. Right now, it's too much of a good thing. What the fuck does that last line mean? It's too much of a good thing. He spent a fucking paragraph slagging it and it says, Ah, it's good actually. Fuck off. He's a prick. (laughs) He's a prick. Uh, He's back next week as well. (laughs) Great. Should we do a little bit of legacy? I mean, there's not a great deal to talk about in terms of in terms of legacy. Well, I, su- I suppose, like as as we kind of talked about the the legacy of it, not only did it revive some actors' careers, it revived and brought many of these artists to yep. a new audience and established the template which lots of people have sort of copied, not nearly as well, of using a pop soundtrack for your film and. Arguably after <clears throat> Guy Ritchie. Well, arguably particularly after sort of if you if you ignore Danny Boyle and Edgar Wright, it's your man James Gunn. Yeah. With Guardians of the Galaxy reinvigorated the concept. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. But you're you're right, there was a lot of pastiches of um of that of this kind of thing in the late nineties. Uh, 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 like you said, stick a few retro signing pop songs on the soundtrack uh, and you've got a you've got a film. You know who cares about plot and character development? And uh, I said, Guy Ritchie, he did some okay films, but he's done some sh- fucking shit ones as well. Um, he's not Bay. He's not Bay, no. But yeah, I think you are absolutely right in that this album basically made soundtrack albums cool again, uh, and the and Tarantino's obsession with picking the right music for the film has been copied by a lot of film directors. And obviously the film itself was huge, you know, scenes from the film and, and accompanying songs were being parodied in Leslie Nielsen films and Simpsons episodes and all over the show, you know. But yeah, that's pretty much all I have to say about Legacy. Yeah, I've got I've got nothing to add. Okay, nice and quick this week. Uh, so Kev, tell me your best song, tell me your worst song from the Pulp Fiction soundtrack. Um, So my worst song... Love is a red dress. Yeah, I've already given the reasons for it. It didn't really work for me. Christ, this is a this is a tough one. This is like choosing which one of your kids you like the most. <laughs> okay, I'll come down, son of a preacher man, because how well it's incorporated in in that scene. Even though Let's Stay Together is brilliantly u- utilized, I think son of a preacher man is more iconic in its usage. That's and like it's really close. Okay, so uh, I agree on "Son of a Preacher Man." To me, it's not close. It's by a fucking country mile. It's the best song on this album. That's not to denigrate any of the other songs we've gone through, but this is one of the sexiest songs ever put to record. 
And for that reason alone, aside from its perfect pitch and use in the film, it's the best song on the album. The worst, I don't agree at all about Lovers of the Red Dress. It's Flowers on the Wall. It's a novelty country and western song. It's not for me, Clive. <laughs> nice. <laughs> all right, though. That's us done, isn't it? That is us done. So, Kev, please tell people how they might keep in touch with the show before we finish for this week. Okay, so since our last record, it's been a thoroughly depressing time um, (laughs) for the world and particularly the internet. So finding something to talk about for the the Twitter bit was quite tricky. (laughs) Fortunately... I came across Fozzie Bear's Twitter account. <laughs> wacka wacka. So I have a Fozzie Bear joke for you. Go on. Did you know that most orcas are named William? It's true. After all, where there's a will, there's a whale. <laughs> wacka wacka. So, whilst checking out Fozzie Bear's brilliant Twitter account, you could also go to our Twitter page, at Clash Album. If you like carefully curated quality content, you can go to our Insta, at Clash Album. Or if you're resolutely old school and you want to um, sign us up for Kaspersky antivirus. No thanks. <laughs> you can send us an email to albumclash at gmail.com. We don't have many listeners in Russia. Which I'm going to put down solely to the fact that we are being censored in Russia uh, and not to the fact that uh, there's not really much of interest for our potential Russian audiences in what we do. I'm sure that um, Russian audiences really do want to hear the latest thoughts of what we feel about brushstrokes or um, (laughs) keeping up appearances. I don't think we've laid into keeping up appearances yet. Uh, We'll have to do that at some point. (laughs) Right, anyway, enough of this nonsense. Uh, Yeah, so, as I always say, guys, thank you so much for listening. Get in touch with us. Let us know what you like. Let us know what you don't like. Let us know what your favourite film soundtracks are. All that stuff. Leave your ratings. Leave your reviews. Tell your mates. The more people we have listening to us, the more reason we have to do this for you on a Tuesday night. So, you know. (laughs) Uh, yeah, thanks very much. Kev, just very quickly remind people what they need to listen to for next week's show. So next week's show is the first official soundtrack for Train Spotting. Great stuff. Uh, until then, however, I have been Tim. I have certainly been Kev. And we will see you next time. Take care, guys. Ta-da. Ta-da. <laughs> <laughs>